Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, a statement of the third Belt and Road Forum calls for high-quality development of the BRI. China launches an AI framework urging equal AI rights for all nations. Joe Biden warns Israel to avoid the kind of September 11 mistakes, and the United States eases oil, gas, and gold sanctions on Venezuela after the signing of a electoral roadmap. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." Dozens of world leaders have pledged to bolster collaboration and elevate the Belt and Road Initiative to a new era of high-quality development. A presidential statement issued after the third Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation says the BRI will drive global growth and help to realize the UN's 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. The forum held here in the Chinese capital has generated more than 450 outcomes, including program deals exceeding the previous events in 2019. Chinese President Xi Jinping has announced eight specific measures or action plans to support further development of BRI projects. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Yu Jia, Director of International Development Coordination Department with Peking University's Institute of New Structural Economics. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Yu. Okay, hello. Thank you. So,、uh, the eight specific action plans announced by President Xi Jinping has a wide range of coverage, including、uh, financing support, green development, promotion. Uh, science and tech cooperation, innovation, people-to-people exchanges, anti-corruption,、uh, ambitions, institutional building, etc., etc. So, to summarize, what do you think they tell us about China's vision for the future of the BRI?、Uh, yes, the core of the BRI consists of the five connectivity principles. That means, like policy communication. Financial integration, infrastructure connectivity, trade flow, and people-to-people bonds. So I think these eight major actions are in line with these five aspects, with elements of inheritance and continuity, while reflecting the characteristics of the new era. So this characteristic is high quality, and over the past decade. The Belt and the Road Initiative has transitioned from a broad brushstroke phase to a detailed and precise phase, facing new technological breakthroughs and climate and environmental challenges.、Mm-hmm. To proactively and rationally address these challenges, we have put forth these eight major actions. So, for instance, we emphasize、uh, promoting green development. We are focusing more and more on green and low carbon practice in infrastructure construction and energy transportation, stressing the importance of green technology application in that process. We also introduce a global initiative for artificial intelligence governance, aiming to expand the scale of joint laboratories and advance cooperation in the field of technological innovation. And additionally, we propose establishing an integrity and compliance evaluation system for BRI contracts. And I think all of these actions demonstrate our commitment to、mm-hmm. taking the Belt and Road Initiative to a higher level and one that is more open, transparent, green, sustainable, and of higher quality. Mm. So, regarding、uh, sustainability, we understand in one particular action, President Xi said China will promote both those, you know, landmark or signature projects as well as small yet beautiful livelihood programs. So, what do you think this tells us about the evolution in China's understanding of the sustainability issue of BRI projects? 
Uh, yes, I think the signature projects and the small yet beautiful programs are two sides of the same coin. Mm. Regional connectivity relies on large-scale projects with substantial financial requirements. Small yet beautiful projects, on the other hand, are more focused on the livelihood improvement, typically represented by uh, technical assistance, capacity building, or training initiatives. And these differences are primarily and inherently determined by the nature of the project. And both types of projects are essential, complementing and re- reinforcing each other. And the livelihood improvement project serves to promote people-to-people bonds within the five connectivity framework and enhancing mutual understanding and goodwill among the people of partner countries. And additionally, through training and technology uh, dissemination or transfer, this project can or bolster the self-sustaining capacity of the recipient country and further contributing to the sustainable development capabilities of co-building nations. Mm. So according to China's official data, over the last decades, the BRI has incubated more than 3,000 uh, specific uh, projects uh, and have also driven investments worth close to worth close to one trillion U.S. dollars. Um, now, some people say the BRI is China's way to position itself as a leader of the developing world or as a leader of the global South at a time when China's ties with the West have generally got worse uh, recently. What is your uh, take about this? Yeah, I think, yes, of course, the BRI was initially proposed by China, but it is not a closed China-centric initiative. Mm. Instead, it is highly open. From the very beginning, we have adhered to the principles of extensive consultation, joint contribution, and shared benefits. And building the BRI is not a solo act by China, but rather a grand Corals of all parties uh, advocating and pra- uh, practicing true mutual lateralism. A recent white paper released by the State Council Information Office of China emphasized that countries, regardless of their size, strength, or wealth, are all equal participants and can actively contribute to bilateral and multilateral cooperation. And participants in the BRI can be uh, developing countries or, or developed nations. Although most co-building countries are developing nations, the initiative also welcomes the participation of developed countries. Mm. And its goal is to harness the collective efforts of all parties to address the deficiencies in infrastructure, lagging like in industrial development, low levels of industrialization, lack of funds and technology, and the insufficient talent reserves in developing countries, so thereby promoting economic and social development. Mm. So I think the BRI provides a platform for consultation and cooperation for economies at different stages of development, as well as an arena for global governance. So it is not a foreign aid program or a geopolitical tool for China. It is a significant international public good. The achievements you, you mentioned regarding the construction of many BRI projects were not accomplished solely by China, but yeah. also include the diligent efforts of the government, enterprises, and the workers of the new the many co-building countries. And their tremendous contributions are essential to this accomplishment. Mm. Building together, planning together, and benefiting from these projects together. So talking about, say, global governance, uh, why do you think, in addition to the BRI, China in recent years has also been promoting this idea of global development initiative? What do you think is the relationship between the BRI and this global development initiative? Uh, yes, the Global Development Initiative and the Belt and the Road Initiative both 
aim to promote international cooperation for mutual benefit. However, these two initiatives are distinct in themselves, each with its own focus, direction, and priorities. For example, the Global Development Initiative emphasizes principles such as development priority, people-centered approaches, inclusivity, innovation, coexistence of humanity and nature, and action-oriented strategies. And in terms of content, it primarily embodies development concepts and guiding principles. And on the other hand, the Belgian Youth Initiative, with its core concept of the five connectivity, aims to develop the Silk Road economic belt and the 21st century maritime Silk Road. It is most specific and project-oriented. It can be said that the process of advancing the high-quality development of the belt and the road initiative aligns with the implementation of the global development initiative. Mm. So therefore, it should adhere to and reflect the principles and the spirit outlined by the Global Development Initiative. Mm. So probably, I guess, a main message or a main mentality coming out of this this latest um, BRI forum here in Beijing is that going forward, uh, the international community or the world needs more cooperation and connectivity. But on the other hand, we are also seeing some attempts by some by some particular countries to decouple or de-risk, etc. So over the long term, which mentality do you think will prevail? One minute. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I think decoupling and disconnection are impossible, as they are neither realistic nor in line with the fundamental principles of human social development and technological progress. Essentially, the history of uh, human uh, social development has been a process of continuous technological advancement, increasingly specialized division of labor, and the closer connections between different nations and the regions. With time and in practice, it will become evident that more cooperation and better connectivity will undeniably contribute to global peace and stability as well as the sustainable social economic development of various countries mm. as they are in uh, they are in line with the interests and the demands of the majority of nations worldwide. So such an approach will will receive support and backing from the vast majority of nations rather than being impeded by the the will and actions of small fraction of countries. Yeah. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Dr. Yu Jia joining us from Peking University's Institute of New Structural Economics. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Under the BRI, African nations like Nigeria have seen comprehensive investments and infrastructure upgrades. While infrastructure construction remains the most visible component of the BRI, the initiative has also helped many companies from China and Nigeria enter new markets, leading them to some untapped business opportunities. So, for more, my colleague Jiang Tao earlier had a conversation with Dr. Charles Onunaiju, director of the Center for China Studies, Nigeria. Many people say that the Belt and Road Initiative has entered into a new stage. What's your interpretation, and、uh, what does that mean for African countries? The view that the BRI has entered a new stage is true,、uh, from the point of the fact that、um, the process is always evolving. From the time it was announced, since ten years ago, it's been evolving. The quality has been developing. Lessons have been learned from、uh, efforts made so far. So、um, it is continuously developing, and、um, the most important thing, like,、um, is the BRI is representative of the broad sentiment that exists in the world today. It represents the trend of the time, the fact of、uh, human desire for effective communication. It become clear and apparent that、uh, no single country. No matter how big, no matter how endowed, can solve all the problems 
of its own uh, by itself. And uh, the imperative of globalization is a fact of life. But how do we make it work for everybody? Because uh, globalization is the reality of our time. And the uh, only way to go ahead with it is to make it work for everybody. So I think um, Burton Road is a concentrated expression of these uh, tendencies, these uh, tendencies that it imagined. It provided a material uh, instrument to facilitate exchanges, build a framework for effective communication within countries and across countries. And uh, I can assure you that Africa has uh, vigorously engaged in this process, herself being more or less isolated from globalization earlier in the sense that uh, um, it didn't have much of what it takes to effectively participate in the globalization process. But I think a Belt and Road had provided the practical tools to engage. And uh, the practical tools is network connectivity, connectivity of infrastructure, because this is the main vehicle for communication, you know. And um, this is being provided. This is becoming very clear in Africa that um, the practical tools for engaging in driving the globalization is uh, uh, made available through the Belt and Road. Looking back at the development costs of the Belt and Road Initiative, what has the initiative brought to Nigeria? Uh, the Belt and Road has scaled up uh, the critical infrastructure need of the country, you know, facilitating uh, growing economic uh, activities, generating economic opportunities, uh, creating jobs for the young people. And uh, more importantly also, because um, when we speak about tangible uh, outcomes, we also speak about intangible, very important intangible outcomes, like promoting social understanding, cross-cultural engagement, uh, the network of transport arteries that is being developed through the framework of the Belt and Road is not only generating economic opportunities, but also generating social intercourse, positive social intercourse, you know, growing cultural intercourse and promoting social cohesion and stability. These are intangible outcomes that may not be quantified in terms of um, what we see, but they are as important as the uh, tangible uh, outcome of the Belt and Road engagement. In the case of Nigeria, in specific terms, we have seen um, connectivity within the country, between the north, the south, you know, and the railway system is back, you know, much more improved than in the earlier times. We've seen construction of ports. The most important is the Lekki Deep Sea Port, Nigerian first ever deep sea port, you know, built in a record time of three years which has substantially cut the time of doing business and, more importantly, made the country a logistical transport hub for the entire region, you know, putting the country in the mainstream of uh, meaningful economic activities within the sub-region. And also there is a power plants, quite a number of power plants have been built on account of this uh, engagement. Currently, there are construction of uh, gas pipelines. These are all meaningful economic uh, and uh, meaningful economic uh, endeavor that we trigger a lot of employment. More concretely, also you have special economic zones. You know, special economic zones that are advancing, improving, and uh, that become industrial hub that become important avenues for generating employment among the young people, absorbing the crisis and shock of what we call the youth budge in Africa, you know, the, the, the explosion of the young people in Africa, which has implication for social stability, is currently now being absorbed through these processes that is facilitated by the road and by the Belt and Road mechanism. So in concrete terms, Nigeria has been on a very important uh, engagement with this process. And I can understand that's why a Nigerian high-level delegation is in Beijing, led by the vice president and some important members of the cabinet to attend the third forum, which is uh, uh, supposed to outline the future of the Belt and Road. So I think uh, Nigeria had been a critical uh, component of the process. Promoting business is a major topic under the Belt and Road Initiative. In the private sector, 
What benefits can African enterprises gain by involving in the initiative, and what emerging areas do you think China and African countries can cooperate in the future? Well, I can assure you that、um, even before the Belt and Road Initiative was founded about ten years ago,、uh, Nigeria and China, Niger- Africa and China, has made huge,、uh, made uh, complete、um, and huge advances in trade. Like you know, China has been African most、uh, largest trading partner in the past fourteen years in a straight row. You know, and、uh, recently there has been very important initiative. On the Chinese side to provide access to African products to Chinese market. If you remember, in 2018, President Xi during the third forum, during the third Africa-China African Summit, he provided for a permanent mechanism to promote trade between China and Africa, and principally give priority to the entrance of African. Products to Chinese market by establishing the African-China Trade and Economic Expo, which holds every two years in China's central province of Hunan, in Shanxi, and、uh, this mechanism has been a boost in China-African trade.、Uh, recently, a whole range of African products, especially agricultural products, have been finding their ways to China:、uh, Namibia, the meat, the Zambian honey. The Rwandan spice, the South African spice, the Ethiopian tea—all are finding their ways to to the Chinese huge market and making tremendous impact in the Chinese market. This has been、uh, giving considerable、uh, acceleration through the mechanism of the Belt and Road and Forum on China-African Cooperation, and the trade between China and Africa is becoming. Increasingly more balanced, with more African products gaining entry into the Chinese market. Under the Belt and Road Initiative framework, what do you think are the key issues in terms of facilitating trade in the private sector? It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a broad framework. I think all critical players can find a niche that corresponds to their specific. Interest, their specific uh, uh, capacity, their specific capability, and their specific area of interest. That is the most important thing of about the BRI. It is not a solo act. It is a global orchestra in which everybody can find his voice, and that means you can find a niche. Of what you can do, where you can participate, not only how to benefit, but how you can enrich the process, make it bigger, make it、uh, make it into a bigger global public good, and uh, uh, with a view to make it accessible to more people. And uh, for me, um, the story of Belt and Road will continue to evolve. I like to see more of uh, uh, impacting communities. People in rural communities, especially in Africa, you know, it is not big projects, big infrastructure projects, but basic rural feeder roads to create access for local people to participate in building an economic,、uh, in engaging economic, meaningful economic activities.、Uh, local communities、um, sometimes in Africa are cut off from each other. But they could become viable market if they become integrated through effective network or infrastructure connectivity, and I can assure you that the kind of connectivity that is needed in this setting is not very expensive one. They are quite not expensive, but they will be very impactful. They will go a long way. In integrating a whole range of small communities who are scattered all over the continent into becoming a part of the huge market, into becoming part of the huge orchestra of the Belt and Road family. So I like to see more、uh, Belt and Road projects going beyond the big ones in the cities, but、uh, getting down. To the communities and building bridges within communities and among communities, I can assure you this will trigger、uh, an important effect of turning these currently sleepy communities into viable markets. And in the long run, they will not only be integrated into their respective national market, but they will become important anchor in building the global market. That was Dr. Charles Onunaiju, director of the Center for China Studies, Nigeria. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break.
You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. China has proposed a framework for artificial intelligence, calling for equal rights on AI development. The Global AI Governance Initiative is calling for a people-centered approach in developing AI, such as in tackling climate change. It is also urging countries to place ethics issue first in formulating guidelines to govern AI, proposing working together to prevent the misuse of technologies by terrorists and criminals. On Wednesday, Chinese President Xi Jinping said China stands ready to boost exchanges with other countries to promote the healthy, orderly, and safe AI development. So, joining us now on the line is Ina Tangen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. Thank you very much for joining us, Ina. A pleasure, pleasure, thank. So, Ina, what do you think this particular initiative we are talking about here? Tells tells us about China's mentality and say vision for AI governance. Well, right now everybody is concerned about what AI can do.、Um, they see it more than a tool; they see it as a possible threat.、Uh, obviously,、uh, manipulation of social media,、uh, you know, having auto、uh, bots sending out、uh, disturbing messages or false information. These are all things that、uh, need to be addressed,、uh, and they need to be addressed globally. Having a patchwork of these systems will not work.、Uh, it will slow down information. It will also slow down development. So what China is doing is taking the initiative and saying, "Look, we should be able to agree on some basic principles about ethics, about the need to, even with sovereign internets, where countries are responsible for what is generated in the country and comes into the country." There needs to be、uh, some way of exchanging free information that is not a threat、uh, to people.、Mm. So the initiative says China opposes drawing ideological lines and or forming exclusive groups to, you know, obstruct or hinder other countries from developing artificial intelligence. And it says China also opposes creating barriers or disrupting the global AI supply chain via technological monopolies, for example, or via unilateral coercive measures. Now, somewhat coincidentally, Ina, you know better than I do because China's initiative was actually announced following this latest、uh, U.S. ban seeking to further restrict China's access to those advanced. Artificial intelligence chips manufactured by American firms. So, do you agree that all countries, all nations, regardless of their size, strength, or social and political system, should have equal rights in terms of AI development? And by the way, how would you comment on this latest U.S. move? Well, that's a very short question. <laughs> so. <laughs> What we have is,、um, you know, obviously they're referring to the United States.、Um, the U.S. believes that it can be coercive in making countries,、um, you know, either slow down their development or blocking access to it.、Uh, and this is what China is referring to. You know, the irony here is that, you know, we're at a, a position where you have 140 countries showing up in China. That is by far the majority, and there's 152 countries. Uh, who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative?、Mm. Um, that is more than three quarters of the world, and they're showing up here in in Beijing because they're interested in a more open, inclusive, a secure、uh, world that is paying attention to sovereignty issues as well as development. So, you know, the, the U.S. You know, moves are kind of contrary to that. Instead of uh, joining in, uh, you know, Biden is spending his time in Israel,、uh, backing up、uh, one side over another.、Um, you know, for a lot of people, they find this、uh, very curious. Why is the U.S. always somewhere around where there's bullets and bombs involved, whereas China tends to be talking about development and、uh, the future? So, you know, at, at this point,、um, countries have to make a choice. And I, I, I would predict that what you're going to do is have happen is you're going to have, especially the global south,、um, engaging in, in trying to create、uh, a <clears throat> rational approach to AI that is safe for all countries that are,、uh, you know is sensitive to the fact that countries have different values, 
but still allows the flow of information back and forth and doesn't try to prohibit uh, entities from doing that. And this is it's really important. We're, we're on the verge of one of the greatest wealth changes uh, that we've seen since the colonial empires because those who own the IP to the digital revolution, yeah. uh, they're going to be very wealthy and the people who don't are going to serve them. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's a very important angle of this question for our audiences and our listeners to think about as well. So, by the way, Ina, um, how would you look at this most recent meeting uh, between those Five Eyes spy chiefs uh, held over there in Silicon Valley in America, which have warned about the so-called risks posed by China in high technology sectors, including AI? Well, I mean, this is just fear mongering. Um, you know, the, the, if if you want to talk about an apparatus that is threatening the world in terms of spying and disinformation, it's the Five Eyes in combination with the United States, which the United States alone has ninety billion dollars a year that they spend on the disinformation and spying. That's that's more than the um, the amount of money that is spent by Russia and India on their defense. And uh, it's 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 staggering sum, and these groups are constantly running around saying that other people are spying when they're <laughs> they're the chief spies out there. It's it's just part of a disinformation campaign to accuse others of doing exactly what you're doing to deflect attention uh, from the facts and just trying to create this sense that there's danger out there. And it works well. I mean, because they can always go to their legislative bodies and say, "Oh, China is doing this. China's spying on us. We need more money. We don't have enough money." That's what. <laughs> mm. I mean, these countries are all set with budgetary issues, and all they can think about is bullets, bombs, and disinformation. Mm. Oh, by the way, talking about disinformation, it actually reminds me of a particular、uh, article in this、uh, Chinese AI initiative, which says that China opposes using AI technology to for the purpose of manipulation of public opinion, spreading of disinformation, or intervening in other countries' internal affairs. What is your take on this point? No, I, I agree with it. I mean, it's it's very hard. Put the genie back in the bottle, as they say. I mean, w- once you have this technology, it's like spyware. You know, everyone was concerned about Pegasus a few years ago, spyware that was created by Israel that allowed governments to spy routinely on any phone that they wanted to,、uh, and it was a zero exploit. So you would you, 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 you would never know that you had been infected, and there are so many ways to do this. So. Um, you know, you, you, it's very hard to prevent governments from doing something. You can say it's illegal. Unfortunately, many of them,、uh, like the U.S., will engage in illegal activities, as was exposed by Snowden. So, you know, at this juncture, I, I think it is important that there are people and countries who are coming forward and saying, "Let's have universal standards that we can all live with and obey. Let's get rid of the distrust." All right, and the, that leads to fear, hatred, etc.、Mm. Uh, it's time to get a more positive spin on what could be something that's very, very good for humanity in terms of the tool.、Mm. So you said earlier that、uh, those countries or those economies which、uh, owns the digital IP,、uh, intellectual property, will be wealthy in the future. So. Realistically speaking, do you think there is a a genuine、uh, or an actual race between certain powers over the setting of global rules and standards in terms of the AI development? Yeah, there's no question about there. There's, there's a competition going on, but the, the real thing that people should be paying attention to is who is willing to share IP、mm-hmm. and who is not.、Uh, China during when there is a vaccine. They worked with 20 countries to set up factories so that they could produce their own vaccine and distribute to their people. All right,、um, you know, Western、uh, companies said, "No, you have to pay us. No, no, we're not going to allow you to have any factories. You've got to buy from us."、Um, and that's emblematic of, of how a lot of、uh, the differences between China's approach and perhaps、uh, the Western approach,、uh, not only U.S. sometimes in Europe as well. 
it's mm-hmm. it's a question of whether you value humanity or you you think that the market is is the most important thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Ina, for raising this particular question. That was Ina Tengen, senior fellow with the Taihe Institute. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Egypt has agreed to allow humanitarian aid trucks into Gaza as anger rises globally over Israel's siege of the Gaza territory in response to Hamas attacks. Up to 20 trucks from a particular aid convoy have been waiting for days to be allowed into Gaza. The Rafahah crossing into the territory on the side of the Egyptians is the only one not controlled by Israel. Israel has made it clear that it would not allow any humanitarian aid from its own territory until the roughly 200 hostages held by Hamas were returned home. U.S. President Joe Biden has made a one-day trip to the region. However, a blast happening at a Gaza City hospital on Tuesday prompted Arab leaders to cancel a previously scheduled summit with Biden. Joining us now on the line is Dr. Wang Jing, Middle East expert with Northwestern University in Xi'an, China. Welcome back. My pleasure. So this latest decision by Egypt was actually announced by Biden when he flew back、uh, from his、uh, trip to to the Middle East back to Washington. Now, according to Biden,、uh, Rafah、um, crossing on the Egyptian side will be opened only for aid, not for evacuations of civilians. And also, there are conditions by the Israeli side as well, which requires that the aid cannot. End up reaching Hamas. So, what do you make of this particular decision by Egypt? Do you see it as a, a diplomatic achievement of Biden's trip?、Uh, well, to some extent, it can be、uh, interpreted as a very diplomatic achievement because actually, after the Biden's visit,、uh, Egypt、uh, made his promise and also made his preconditions for the opening of the humanitarian aid channel、uh, to the Gaza Strip. But we have to know. I think,、uh, on the one hand, we have to understand the、e- Egypt's dilemma because now the the, the, the Israel is, is preparing for launching a very large wave of the grounded offensive against Gaza、uh, in the aim of, of eliminating the, the presence of Hamas、hmm. there. So that is why、uh, the Egypt、uh, does not want to pro-、uh, provoke the anger from the Israeli side. And on the other hand, Israel. Uh, the, the, under the Israeli threat, a lot of people, especially in the Palestinians in Gaza, they they withdraw from the northern Gaza to、uh, to the southern Gaza. But then, in, in, even in the southern Gaza, they also face a very serious humanitarian crisis there. Humanitarian uh, uh, crisis uh, from the shortage of uh, food cri- uh, food supply, water supply, and、uh, daily necessities. So it's actually difficult for the pe- local people to maintain their lives there. So it is highly necessary for、uh, for the international society to open a channel from Egypt uh, Rafa uh, uh, crossing into the Gaza Strip、uh, to help the local people there. But from the perspective of Egypt, they are not able to maintain such a large number of the the the, the, the refugees that flowing、uh, from Gaza to their Sinai Peninsula, and also they are this this is very difficult to for Egypt to distinguish within a very short term who are the militias. From Hamas and who are the civilians? So it's actually very difficult for Egypt to make the decision. So、mm. even now that the United States, yes, it may it seems like actually they made some kind of the, a, a diplomatic achievement, but、uh, his visit, I mean Biden's visit, does not successfully did not successfully、uh, pacify everybody's tension、yeah. and does not、uh, provide the very common sense for the different、uh, conflicting sides. So I don't think yes, to some extent, actually he made the. The achievement, but、uh, to the larger、uh, extent, I don't think his、uh, his diplomatic trip was successful.、Mm. Biden has actually urged the Israel, the Israeli、um, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, during their long conversation. He urged Israel now to be consumed by anger and rage, and to end up repeating Washington's mistakes after the 2001 terrorist attacks. So what? Can you read from this particular piece of comments by Mr. Biden? And do you think there is any sign that the leadership of Israel would ever listen to Biden in this regard? 
No, I think just the binding is just the uh, it just the uh, uh, took the nine one one and the, what happened after nine one as a lesson and to, to hope to change the minds of the inside Israeli leadership. But we have to know, on the one hand, every uh, major diplomatic and the political decisions made by the political leader, they have their own particular and specific, uh, specific, uh, specific mm. uh, historical background and the circumstances. We cannot say, okay, after 20 years that you made the mistake, but against the very particular background that, that, uh, uh, that uh, erupted or happened at the very particular time, uh, that maybe his 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 decision made by the particular leader was very rational, was was, was very correct because um, against a very special uh, backdrop. So we cannot blame that. Okay, now he after 20 years now that, that was a big mistake. So the 20 years earlier that was not a big um, that, that, that that he 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 he, he should make a different decision. I don't think so because even the Biden he could go back to 20 years ago. I don't think he will also make the different uh, make make a, make the very different decision. So, but also for Israel, I think the very major problem is that Israel government as well as Israeli social opinion are now in the status of a very strong anger because they believed from their perspective that they suffered very large losses at the very beginning of this attack from Hamas from Gaza. So they want just the thing they want just the revenge. Actually, so so from this against this backdrop, they ignored the very. Uh, serious problem of humanitarian crisis inside Gaza. They also ignored the very escalating possibilities of uh, the, the, the regional tensions uh, inside in the Middle East. So mm-hmm. I, I think maybe they will follow the, the advice of the Biden, but I don't think the Biden's advice will change their mind to, to launch larger waves of uh, grounded uh, offensive against the Gaza in the near future. Mm-hmm. So we will keep observing for sure. Now, in the meantime, we understand the United States has vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution drafted by Brazilians, which would have condemned Hamas on one hand, while on the other hand, calling for a a pause in the fighting to allow for humanitarian assistance. Uh, The United States was actually the only vote against this particular piece of resolution the U.S. says that it did not do enough to underscore Israel's right to self-defense. So, Dr. Wan, how would you look at this U.S. veto? Now, I think the United States resolution attempt is very important because they hope, according to the resolution, they hope to call the calm, call for the calm of uh, both conflicting sides on the one hand and hope to, uh, to seek the, the resolution for both humanitarian assistance to the local uh, people in Gaza Street as well as seek the opportunities uh, for the possible ceasefire in the recent future. So actually, it is a very important resolution to, uh, to help not only the, the people in, uh, in, in Israelis, but also the people from the, especially from the Gaza Strip. So actually, it's a very important resolution. But uh, from maybe the from perspective of Israel, and maybe from perspective of the United States, under the persuasion of, of Israel, that uh, this resolution lacks some kind of very uh, specific and, uh, 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 and the, the stress over the, the suffering of Israeli losses. So, so that is why I think the United States, maybe they, they veto the, the United Nations uh, resolution attempt. But, uh, but w- what I want to speak is that, okay, uh, maybe this resolution is not perfect, but actually it's a resolution that's based upon the international society consensus right now. And also this is a resolution that with the attempt to, uh, to help the local people there and to help the pacify the tension. And this pacifying tension will finally benefit everybody in the conflict inside, no matter who you are, Israeli or you are, you are the Palestinian in the Gaza Strip. So even that after the you know, Israeli, they, they started their land, uh, grounded offensive in, against the Gaza Strip, not only the, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, they were suffering from the mm-hmm. wars, from the losses, from the deaths. But also the Israeli soldiers, they also maybe they lost their lives. And also the Israeli hostages they're taken by Hamas or other militias in the Gaza Strip, they also, maybe, they also may lose their lives. So actually the resolution from the United Nations is a bridge to bring the gap between the different sides. But now the United States just a bit of it. So I don't think uh, it's a very smart decision. Maybe the United States think it might, might not be proper. But then what is highly necessary right now is that we should find a common ground mm. for, for ceasefire as soon as possible. Yeah, your point's well taken. Definitely the current uh, degree of humanitarian crisis in Gaza is very concerning. 
because there are reports showing that despite Israeli warnings to evacuate the northern part of Gaza, some civilians are actually returning to the north after they simply failed to find places to stay. So going forward, we will keep watching. But thank you very much. That was Dr. Wang Jing joining us from Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. The U.S. has agreed to suspend some sanctions on Venezuela after President Nicolas Maduro's administration reached a deal with a faction of opposition on election roadmap. The six-month sanctions suspension is in the country's oil, gas, as well as gold industries. A ban on trading in the primary Venezuelan bond market remains in place. Maduro's agreement with the opposition came days before the opposition is set to hold a primary to choose a candidate for the 2024 presidential election. So, joining us now on the line is Jiang Shixue, distinguished professor with the College of International Relations, Sichuan International Studies University. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> so, first of all. Um, what do you make of this most recent electoral deal between Maduro's government and this American-supported faction of the opposition? Well, I would say this is a welcome gesture、uh, because you know、uh, the political crisis、um, in Venezuela has been going on for many, many years.、Uh, I would say、uh, Venezuela is suffering from.、Uh, Four crises: political crisis, economic crisis, diplomatic crisis, and social crisis. So, in order to deal with this kind of crisis, I think uh, uh, both the opposition, Maduro, and the U.S.、Uh, need to do something、uh, to 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 deal with this crisis as early as possible. Mm. So, following the announcement of this most recent U.S. decision to partially suspend its sanctions against Venezuela,、uh, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said in a statement that Washington、uh, quote expects the Venezuelan government to start releasing politically politically jailed prisoners and to begin to lift bans on all candidates by the end of the coming November unquote. Um, in real practice, do you think Mr. Maduro will do that? And do you think this is a sign that the United States、uh, will continue to intervene in Venezuela's、uh, internal affairs? I believe Maduro、uh, would uh, welcome uh, this kind of、uh, action by the by the U.S. Because Maduro, as I said just now, is suffering from so many crises,、mm. so uh, he, uh, the government hopes that、uh, through consultation and dialogues with the opposition,、uh, the, the whole situation can improve.、Uh, regarding the political prisoners and other kinds of things, well, it depends how、uh, this kind of request. Uh, what way on the foreign policy uh, uh, landscape for the Maduro administration?、Uh, first of all, I believe that、um, there will be a kind of talk, peaceful talk, political talk between the opposition and the government. Then it depends on how the opposition will react to this kind of negotiation and domestic uh, political. Uh, Uh, bargaining. If if Maduro thinks that、uh, only the government will make concessions,、uh, mm-hmm. not、uh, both sides, then I I don't believe that Maduro will release all the political prisoners. Will meet all the political demands by the opposition.、Mm. So during its heyday. Venezuela was pumping what about three million barrels of crude oil a day, but today、um, production of oil is well below a third of the level that I mentioned earlier. 
So do you think this particular easing of American sanctions against Venezuela we are talking about today will have any impact, either short term or long term,、uh, regarding、uh, Venezuela's、um, oil、uh, production? Well,、uh, any any release of this kind of sanction is good for the oil industry、uh, of Venezuela. Uh, but uh, I don't believe uh, this kind of uh, uh, changes for the foreign policy of the U.S. can have、uh, really a big impact on the economy of Venezuela as a whole.、Uh, can we say that it's a kind of a, a, a pie in the sky?、So、we still need to wait and see what will happen. Really,、uh, according to some kind of news reports. Uh, the uh, policy change uh, on the U.S. side only relates, uh, uh, only allows an, an American oil company Chevron、yeah. to have some kind of operation in the oil sector、uh, in Venezuela. So it's really helpful, but、uh, don't expect that、uh, that kind of、uh, positive impact will be very, very、uh, enormous.、Mm. I doubt it. Okay, so Professor Jiang, we still have about one minute or so for、yeah. our discussion with you today. Going forward, to what extent do you think、uh, the U.S. foreign policy towards Venezuela will be affected by oil prices? Well,、uh, there is some kind of relationship between the oil prices and uh, the uh, American uh, sanction uh, towards uh, uh, towards Venezuela. Well, when the war in Ukraine broke out,、uh, the U.S. had already、uh, changed something for its policy towards the oil process and oil、uh, industries in Venezuela. So let's hope that、uh, the U.S.、Uh, will do something to、uh, improve the uh, political situation, uh, the political situation uh, in Venezuela. Uh, well, I think、uh, both sides, internal and outside,、uh, need to do something. Okay, that was、uh, Professor Jiang Shixue, distinguished professor with the College of International Relations, Sichuan International Studies University. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.